But good morning. We're starting a new series today. We're in the fall, and we tend to start new things in the fall. Um, and the new series that we're beginning today is called This Sacred Life. This Sacred Life. Um, and we are looking at eight statements that will tease out, we hope, the way that Jesus viewed the world. That these uh, statements, phrases, lenses, paradigms, um, enable Jesus to live all of life as sacred space. To live all of life as an awareness that God is present and at work. And so what we're doing over the next eight weeks is we're trying these paradigms out for ourselves to see if they recolor the world for us. That's what we're doing together. Now, why is this necessary, you might be asking. And if you are, that is a fantastic question. Thank you so much for asking it. Um, we are doing this because for at least the last 400 years, uh, we as a society have lived under the illusion that reality can be separated into different buckets called secular and sacred. So there are, um, we live down here in the, secret, in the secular space. God lives up there, out there. There are things like church and Bible and Caleb that fall into the spiritual sacred bucket. And there are things like jobs and mortgages and yard work that fall into the secular bucket. And we bifurcate our lives into these two buckets. And um, we, the church hasn't helped, to be honest with you. We've sort of bought into this bifurcation. Um, in the, in, insofar as we tend to see ourselves as as sort of offering spiritual goods, spiritual rituals or knowledge in the hopes that God will uh, show up and do something in our midst. That He'll come down into our secular space with His sacred presence and do something. Or we show up to church and we, um, we think that we walk through doors that bring us into sacred space and we hope that enough of it rubs off on us so that when we go to work Monday, we won't be so secular. Anybody can relate to this? But at Cultivate, we want to be committed to recovering a sacred view of all of reality. All of life is sacred space. There is no split. God is present in all things. He doesn't show up into our lives. We wake up to His presence and what He's already doing. That our spiritual life is the very life that we lead day by day, minute by minute. This is the way that Jesus lived. Yes? Um, we're utilizing a book as we go through this. The, uh, the eight paradigms that we're going to talk about over the next eight weeks come from this book called Having the Mind of Christ. It was written by a couple friends of mine, um, Matt Tebby and Ben Sternkey. Um, so we have copies of this book down. Now, here's the thing. It's a green book, and um, I put them on a green table. So if you don't know they're there, you're going to walk right by them and never see them. Uh, but they're down there. Uh, they're $12 a piece if you want to um, give a donation. Uh, to grab one of the books, you can either leave cash or you can donate through the realm if you're on that. Um, you're also free to get it on Amazon, but it's going to be like 17 as opposed to 12. Or if, you're, um, if your um, local library, so for instance, I'm in the Cherry Hill Library, and we have access to something called Hoopla, which is like a digital uh, rental system. 
um, I saw that it's on Hoopla, both the ebook and the audiobook, for free. So if you want to participate that way, you can download the ebook or you can listen along on the audiobook for free. Now, why am I mentioning all this? Is because we're going to do a couple learning communities uh, throughout the eight weeks that we're going through the series where we can dive a little bit deeper into the content of what we're talking about and discuss the ways that it's kind of prompting us, the ahas or the uh-ohs that we're having along the way uh, through this series. So we're going to do um, an, an every week online, and we're going to do an every other week in person. Um, so the every week online, those are going to be happening on Tuesdays, as it turns out. That's, that seems to be the day that, every, that people are available, so that's what day we're going to do it. So the, Tuesdays at 8 o'clock on Zoom. I know everybody loves Zoom, but it's a convenient platform for us to do something like this. So we're going to do that every week uh, if you want to participate with that. So if you do want to do that, make sure you grab a book today or download it online and start reading it because we're going to do the first chapter on Tuesday. Make sense? So that's the online one. The every other week one is going to happen in person. I think those are going to happen at our house, although um, somebody else might jump in to host a few here and there. Um, but those are going to happen every other Friday. Um, and we're going to do a meal. We're going to, and what we're going to do through those is we're going to discuss uh, either two sermons or two paradigms, two chapters from the book. So because they happen every other week, we'll do two at one shot. Does that make sense? All right, I'll post all this online again. And if you have questions about anything, come and talk to me afterwards. And I'd love to clarify how unclear I've been. So today, we're starting out uh, this new series, as I said, and we're beginning with the first reality, the first paradigm, the first lens that Jesus had uh, when it came to the way that he lived his life, and he invites us to live our lives, and that is the paradigm that the goal of our entire lives, yours and mine, is divine union, is oneness with God, is a relationship of love. That is the goal. Um, so, let's look at a place where this uh, presents itself. Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 19. They'll be on the screen. You can look them up uh, if you'd like to in your Bible or an app. But Ephesians 3, Paul says this in verse 14. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Friends, today we proclaim the good news that the gift, the grounding, and the goal of life the gift that inaugurates the grounding, that sustains, and the goal to which we move is a life of love. It's union with Christ in God. This love is full of grace and truth. It's the solution to our greatest problem and is known by being filled with all the fullness of God. Brothers and sisters, will you consent to that love today? 
Um, I'm going to bring up a controversial movie that I really like, and you might not like it, and we can fight about it afterwards if you want. Um, perhaps my favorite movie from 2004 is the movie The Notebook. No. Um, the movie uh, The Village. How many of you have seen The Village? M. Night Shyamalan's The Village. This was back before he became maybe infamous for some of his more recent movies. But um, it's 18 years, years old now, so I'm going to ruin it. You had your shot. Fair? I think that's fair. Uh, so the premise of the movie is that it's an Amish-style 17th, 18th century community that lives entirely cut off from the outside world by woods. There's a border around this community of watchtowers, and we find out early on that there are monsters in the woods. We don't go there. So in order to keep the community safe and to keep the monsters out, they have to perform these safety rituals. Um, they keep lanterns lit, and they position people to watch the woods, and they sound alarms if the monsters come. And they also have to wear certain colors. The color red is bad. That brings the monsters. The color yellow is good. That keeps them away. They have to do these things on a daily basis, upholding these rituals, because this is the uneasy truths that they have negotiated with these monsters that live in the woods. If they don't go into the woods, the monsters won't come into the village. The promise of the village is that if you stay within the boundaries, you'll be safe. If you follow the rules, then the scaries can't get you. Death and destruction can be mitigated and managed by appropriate boundaries. Fear is your best friend in the village. Fear is what keeps you safe. Fear functions to keep us from crossing the line, from sliding down the slippery slope to destruction. Does this seem like a familiar concept to anyone here? Um, one of the reasons I like this movie is because it's a parable about human existence. That we live in a world that has all kinds of promises and goals for our safety. An in versus out mentality a fear-based, um, propositional view of life. <clears throat> and again, the church is bought into this uh, very much so. It looks oftentimes like the village. We talk about keeping rules and having boundaries and not wearing the bad clothes that show too much and wearing the good clothes that keep us modest. But the goal of life, according to Paul and according to Jesus, is not to stay out of the woods. It's not to stay away from the scaries and the bad things. It's not to obey the rules to keep the monsters out. The goal isn't safety. The goal isn't certitude. The goal isn't moral perfection. The goal isn't protection. The goal isn't taking back political power. The goal is not getting our way. Today, we proclaim that the good news is that the gift, the grounding, the goal of our lives is love. Fear cannot produce love, but perfect love casts out fear, we're told. This perfect love is full of grace and truth, and it is the solution. It is God's answer to our greatest problem, which is sin.
So let's look at Ephesians 3 together. Paul is praying for a Christian community. He's just told them how the good news of Jesus has reconciled two very different ethnic groups that have divisions and rivalries and factions with one another. And he said that the cross of Jesus Christ has now created one humanity out of the two pieces, making peace between them forever. He calls this a mystery that's been hidden for the ages. And he's saying that the the church in its reconciled togetherness, its oneness, its unity is is a symbol, it's a declaration to the cosmos that this Gospel is true. That God did what He said He would. And then this presents a question that Paul's going to answer. And the question is this, how will they be this symbol to the world? What do they need in order to fulfill this function? They're going to need something in them to do the work. And so Paul prays in a prayer asking for a gift for this church to do what it's called to do. And he says this in verse 19. His prayer is to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's the gift they need. Love is the gift that they need. And it's given by God, and Paul equates it with being filled with God. Do you see that? Now, we talked about this all summer. I just talked to somebody about the Summer of Love series that we just wrapped up on. I mean, that's been like our one, um, one chord like song that we've been doing for the last several months because we looked at 1 John, and 1 John's all about love. So forgive me if I repeat myself a little bit here. But love is the very essence of God. Love is the very essence of God. God doesn't have love. God is love. And all of His attributes flow out of who He is. So to receive love is to receive God. And to receive God is to receive love. Do you see the quick math equation that I just did? John, when he talks about the entrance of Jesus Christ into the world, begins by saying that this God who comes and lives among us in the form of His Son, Jesus Christ, comes full of grace and truth. This is the shape or the architecture of that love. So grace is um, God giving Himself to us. Sometimes we think of grace as getting what we don't deserve. Now we might not deserve it, But that's missing the point. Grace is about getting the very life of God Himself, whether you deserve it or not. It's not a thing. It's a a person that we receive. Grace is relational invitation into the very life of the Trinity. And truth is, uh, is kind of understanding reality from God's point of view. It's authority, empowerment to live in the kingdom. So love is about connecting with us and it's about calling us into the life of God. It's about empowering us and engaging us. It's a life full of compassion and commission. It's a gift. Today, we proclaim the good news that the gift of the Christian life is love. And it's full of grace and truth. It's the solution to our greatest need. Our greatest problem, which is sin. 
and is known by being filled with all the fullness of God. Will you consent to this love, this gift today? Paul then says that it's the grounding of our life. It's the thing that we stand on. Verse 17 says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love. Um, you know, it's no accident that we, like our church is called Cultivate. We like things that talk about plants. So anytime there's like a root or a seed or a leaf, or like it's going to come up, right? It's, we're going to highlight it at some point. So Paul says that, that our life is rooted in love. That our greatest problem, friends, is solved by love. Love is not a transaction that we sign on the dotted line for. Love is not something that we get instead of punishment. Some of us were told that that's what love is. It's the withholding of punishment. I didn't give you punishment, therefore I love you. Is that love? There are a lot of bad metaphors out there when we think of love. And it often turns love into this impersonal, abstract transaction. In the book, Matt and Ben um, talk about love and salvation this way. Uh, They say this, many of us inherited a view of salvation that describes it essentially as a transaction between us and God. Sin is bad actions that we accrue that offend God. And to rectify the situation, a penalty must be paid for this offense. And so Jesus pays the penalty for us and we get into heaven when we die. In this view, salvation is essentially transactional. An exchange of goods between parties. Now, is it true and good that God forgives our sins and that we get a clean slate with Him? Yeah, absolutely. That's good and right and necessary. God forgives us. But here's the thing. If my greatest problem is debt, then the greatest solution to that problem is not love. It's a willing donor. Does that make sense? All I need is someone wealthy enough and willing enough to pay for that debt, regardless of whether or not they want to be with me. Someone can pay my debt and walk away, and they've still paid my debt. So that's an aspect of the good news of Jesus Christ, but it's not the totality of it. God both forgives us and wants to be with us. That's the point. So if you remember, um, we talked about Genesis 3 way back at the beginning of the year in the series uh, called Origins. If you haven't heard that series and you're wondering what Cultivate is like thinking about and, and, and what we're wrestling with, like, um, go back and listen to that series because be, I think it'll be helpful. But in Genesis 3, uh, Adam and Eve make a decision, <clears throat> and that decision makes... Um, has massive ramifications for their relationship with each other and with God. Do you remember that? They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, And how does God respond to the entrance of sin into the world? He does not come to Adam and Eve, his created beings, talking about a debt that they have incurred. He does not come talking about how his holiness was violated. He comes asking a question. What is that question? 
Where did you go? Where are you? Where have you run to? Why are you hiding from me? Now, you might, if you are familiar with this story, you know how this little story ends, and you're thinking to yourself maybe, yeah, but he kicks them out at the end of the story. They get 86 from that garden. They can't go back into God's presence. What is that all about? If God wanted to be with them, why does He kick them out? And the rationale that we're told, God says this in the story, is not because God wanted to or had to punish His humans because they broke His rules. The rationale that we're given for the reason that they have to leave is because God says in essence, now that they are separated from Me, I don't want them to eat from the tree of life and live forever in this condition. I don't want them to live on and on and on separated from the giver of life. I have to separate them from the tree of life because I love them too much to allow them to continue in that condition forever. God isn't punishing Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. He's protecting them from eternal separation. He's literally saving them from hell. Because God is love. And that's what love does. There are many metaphors that Scripture uses for sin. But our greatest problem is not that we can't live up to God's law. Our greatest problem is that we have given ourselves over to death and sin and destruction, isolating ourselves from the very source of life. See, back to plants. If you take a plant and pull it out of the soil and the life and the light that it was created to flourish within, what happens to the plant? It shrivels and dies. It decays. The plant's problem is that it's separated from life and light. What it was created for. So what does the plant need? It needs to be reconnected to the light and life that it was meant for. And that's what we need too. That's what Jesus does for us. Um, Albert Einstein was uh, famous. You know that. Um, for a lot of things. But one of the things that... Um, I, uh, an idea that I read from him recently that's really stuck with me, is he said this, if, if you give me one hour to solve a problem, an equation, I'm going to take 55 minutes to identify exactly what the problem is and five minutes to solve it. Now, why, why would a genius like Albert Einstein, is it just that he's really good at solving equations in five minutes? Is he lazy? No. He understands something fundamental about the world, that if you define the problem wrong, you will come to the wrong solution, even if it's right on paper. You have to define the problem before you can solve it. So if we start with the, pro the, the wrong problem, we'll arrive at the wrong solution, no matter how smart we are. So if we start with debt as our primary issue, then payment is the solution. But if we start with isolation from the love of God, 
and his life in us as the primary problem, then friends, love is the only solution that makes sense. It's the only solution that makes sense. The cross is where God gives his very life to us as medicine for our sickness and healing for our brokenness, redemption out of our slavery, victory over our defeat, and resurrection in our death. He was the light, and that light was the life for all people. See, this is what love does. It takes a plant that has uprooted itself out of light and love and casted itself into death and destruction. And it says to that plant, I don't want you to live forever like that, so I'm going to cut you off from eternity in that state. And then I'm going to work, work, work for thousands of years to replant you and to nourish you so that you can be filled with all the fullness of light and life. Friends, today we proclaim the good news that that is the grounding of our life. It's the soil where we receive the gift of life from. And this grace and truth is the solution to our greatest problem. Death, decay, destruction because of our isolation from God. God gives His very life to us. Salvation is being filled with all the fullness of God Himself, just like He intended from the very day one. Friends, will you consent to that life today? Will you say yes to the light and life that God wants to give you today? Last is that love is the goal. You're picking up on a pattern here, right? The gift, the grounding, the goal. It's got to be more true because they're alliterated. Um, the goal of life is to be one with God and with, and with each other. This is what Paul says. This is the goal of all humanity. It's where we are headed. It's what Jesus prays for in John 17 when he says, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one Father just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Love is where it's headed. And um, it's important to clarify this as the goal. Because so many sub-goals can creep in and take the place of the primary one if we're not careful. Um, we see this a lot, I think. I've fallen into this a lot. As having goals that uh, Matt and Ben called sub-Christian goals for our lives, for our church, for our community. One of those goals is knowledge. Knowledge is a sub-Christian goal. Now, here's the thing. Knowledge is a good thing. But if, if, our, if, if knowledge is the primary thing, then we'll fall into a trap where we believe that all we need is more knowledge to fix all the problems that we have in our lives. And, I mean, many of churches have tried to go on this road. Like, just, hey, we've got a, a, a plan for that. We've got a solution. Seven, best, seven steps to your best life now. Twelve ways to have the marriage that will make your neighbor jealous. And so on, and so on, and so on. Our fundamental problem is not that we are stupid or ignorant, friends. It is that we are uprooted out of the light in life that sustains us. Another false goal um, 
One could be knowledge or certitude or correct thinking. The other one could be correct behavior or moral perfection. We can slip into a way of thinking that the primary goal of our lives in Christ is to stop sinning so much. It's to stop that online shopping that we do late at night. Stop that gossiping about your friends. Don't drink and don't chew and don't date girls that do. It's a slippery slope. Don't do it. We get into a gospel of sin management where it just becomes about doing the right do's and not doing the right don'ts. There are so many um, sub-Christian goals. Beliefs and behaviors are just two of them. But Paul reorients the goal away from those things. Those good things, right? It matters what you think and it matters what you do. But he says, if you're filled with the fullness of God, if you have the strength to comprehend how wide and deep and tall and long is the love of God, guess what? You're transformed, aren't you? You're replanted in the light and life. You actually know the thing that transcends knowledge. Virtue and wisdom spring from love. You show me someone who grasps the love of God and I'll show you the wisest, most righteous person you've ever known. Is what Paul would say. This is the good news today. That the gift, the grounding, the goal of life isn't a transaction or a destination in the sky. It's love. God working out our salvation to replant us in the light and life of His very triune essence. This, full of grace and truth, is the solution to our greatest sickness. This is good news. Will you consent to it? Alright, so back to the village. The notebook? No, the village. Um, we find out that this village that appears to be this 17th, 18th century um, cut-off, isolated community of people called Covington uh, is actually a present-day village. It was started by um, a man whose father was murdered over a business deal, greed. And he started it along with others who also suffered violence. They were part of a support group together. And they came up with this idea of isolation as a way to insulate the members of the group from further harm, loss, pain. See, the reason that the elders of the village chose this life, this life less than love, and based on fear, the reason they strive for this security and safety is because they're tired of being hurt. Can you relate? So they start this village as an illusion. Um, they wall themselves off in a nature preserve. They pay off the airlines not to fly overhead. They come up with a story about monsters in the woods around them to keep the people in the village. They dress up as those monsters and roam the, the perimeter to make people so afraid that they'll never want to leave. They are the boogeymen. But for all their attempts at insulating them from harm and pain, death and decay and destruction still find their way into the village. 
They can't separate themselves from the suffering. One villager's son dies of a treatable disease. Death won't play by their rules. Another young man is critically injured by another man with mental illness because he's jealous that he has the affection of the woman that he likes. And he now has, towards the end of the movie, he has an infection that needs medicine from the outside. Their sins are finding them out. It's not working. But in the middle of death and destruction and decay, where fear reigns over all, there is one person who decides to trust love rather than fear. It's a woman named Ivy who is born blind and is the woman who's betrothed to the man who has the infection, Lucius. And she decides that um, no matter what, she is going to leave the village to find the medicine that he needs. And, and she discovers that the, the entire um, monster system that they've been living under of fear is a complete lie. And so she marches out of the village. There are two men that go with her, and they get afraid, and they hightail at home. Typical, right? So she leaves the village. She scales the wall. She finds a park ranger, and instead of finding further harm, she finds help. Instead of finding cruelty, the cruelty that she was promised that she would discover from the outside world, she finds kindness, and she returns with the medicine that she needs. Now, there's a a cliffhanger here. You don't know if Lucius is going to live or die, but it's sort of besides the point. The point is that within this village of fear, there are two people who have decided to trust love, who will put themselves out there even if it costs them their lives, and that even on his deathbed, they decide to trust light and life. What is your conception of this Christian life that you've been invited into? Where have you believed that God actually uses things like fear, guilt, and shame to motivate you to live lives within the walls of a boundaried system? Where is your God more like the elders of the village rather than the God revealed in Jesus Christ who invites you into a life of love? Today we proclaim the goal, the grounding, the gift of our life is love. This love is full of grace and truth. It's seen and embodied in Jesus. And if God is love and Jesus is God, then Jesus is love. It's the solution to our greatest problem. Known by being filled with all the fullness of God. Will you consent to that love today? Um, As we respond, which we do after hearing good news, um, I was reminded that Paul says in Acts 17 that God is not far from any of us, for, we, for in Him we live and move and have our being. God is here. And so we, um, as I mentioned at the front end, and this is a quote from the book, we don't, we don't ask God to show up, we wake up to what God is already doing and saying and moving. And so we're going to take some time in prayer. Um, just take a few moments to um, kind of close our eyes and, and um, remember God's love 
set our minds on him. There's, um, there's this metaphor in the, the movie, The Village, where um, any time that someone is going to test um, how, how fearful they are, they put out their arms like this, and they stand in a vulnerable position. It's, a, it's an embodied way to say, I will not live according to fear. So if that helps you this morning, now don't smack your neighbor, but um, as we're praying, maybe you want to put out your hands as an offer of vulnerability to say, God, I need to be in touch with your love again today. So let's pray, and um, I just encourage you to enter into this. Father, we, we thank you that we are um, present with you this morning. Not because of where we are, it's because of who you are and who we are. And so God, we, um, as we close our eyes, it sounds cliche, but we open our hearts to you. We, we demonstrate our openness with open hands. And we ask that you would allow us to see how close you really are. As we breathe in, we breathe in your breath. God, would you fill every part of us? God, would you flood every space? Especially the spaces that feel gripped by fear or discomfort or pain. We give you consent to enter and to have your way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.